Welcome to Pod Bless Canada. I'm Charles Burton. I'm a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And today it's our great honor and pleasure to welcome Brigadier General Robert Spaulding to speak with us about China. General Spaulding retired from the U.S. Air Force as a Brigadier General after 25 years of service. He's a former China strategist for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Joint Staff at the Pentagon, as well as a senior defense official and defense attache in China in years past. He earned his doctorate in economics and mathematics from the University of Missouri and is fluent in Mandarin. So welcome, General Spaulding. Thank you. Great to be here. And I'd like to add that I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. So that's, that's my, very important to know. my home institute. And of course, uh, most recently, he's produced a book called Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, which is currently receiving rave reviews and a lot of readership because of his insights into the true nature of what's going on between Canada and China. Um, If I could start off, I wonder if you could give us a current perspective on China-U.S. relations. Your book was, of course, uh, released in June 2019, or at least that's when you finished writing it, and a lot of things have happened since. So I wonder if you could just give us a general overview of how you see things going now. Sure. Um, and a lot of things happened while I was writing the book. So it was it was a, quite a challenge to incorporate some of the things that were coming out because policy was changing so fast. And I think really since the release of the National Security Strategy in December of 2017 and the beginning of what I would call uh, rebalancing the relationship between the U.S. and China that began in 2018, I think you've seen a number of changes in the U.S. policy towards China. And the book is really an effort to provide background and context to the national security strategy that came out in December 2017, explaining a lot of the efforts by the U.S. government to change the relationship in a more balanced way uh, between the U.S. and China. And I think it focuses on two things. Uh, One is globalization and the other is the Internet. And really, the impact that globalization has had on our democracy and our economy Uh, and the impact that that's not only created within the prosperity of our country, but also in the national security uh, on the internet side. The change in the global economy with the rise of the large tech companies and China's, you know, really embrace of that technology and business um, architecture that has enabled them to have broad influence around the world and will increase with the deployment of 5G. So in your book, you point out that this change in attitude towards China does not originate with the Trump administration, but that, that the, the roots of it are really in the Obama administration when the American government started to figure out what's really going on. Uh, we haven't reached that point here in Canada, I'm afraid to say. Um, I'm wondering if you have any notion of what Canada can do to try and get our relations back on track. Right now, we've got a situation of you know arbitrary imposition of non-tariff barriers against significant Canadian agricultural commodities, particularly canola seeds, and uh, in retaliation for Canada's detaining of the Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou, China has arbitrarily detained two Canadian citizens, including one former diplomat who is apparently being interrogated on matters he became privy to while a diplomat in violation of the Vienna Convention. And it seems that the Canadian government's paralyzed into inaction and unable to make any kind of response to these outrages, which I would argue further emboldens China. So if you could be the Canadian Prime Minister, uh, how would you do things differently? Well, I think it's not really much different than how the U.S. is approaching things. And that is to recognize that 
since the end of the Cold War, we've had a fundamental shift in how geopolitics is governed. Traditionally, particularly uh, at the end of World War II and into the Cold War, uh, military alliances played a strong role in, in determining how nations work together. Of course, during the Cold War, there was far more integration amongst democracies in their economy and in their financial flows, and certainly in how they shared technology and didn't share technology with the former Soviet Union. And so I think since the end of the Cold War, uh, the idea has been, at least from the standpoint of the United States, to generate a foreign policy that focuses on economic theory and social theory. Open markets lead to wealth. Wealth leads to democracy. And in doing so, created these connections, economic, financial, and informational with uh, in the United States, the corporate sector, Wall Street, media, political sector, also academia in ways that have essentially turned the strengths of openness uh, of the West into vulnerabilities because those connections, economic and financial, lead to decisions that ultimately erode our democratic principles. And one of the best examples recently was the NBA, where um, a general manager for the Houston Rockets was, you know, essentially uh, the Chinese Communist Party went to the NBA and asked them to fire Daryl Morey for uh, essentially tweeting about in support of the protesters in Hong Kong. And so these connections, which create and incentivize our, you know, what is really our nation's elite to do things that are counter to our values and our principles, is something that we're trying to protect. And so from the Canadian standpoint, you know, these economic and financial connections, what we said in our national security strategy, between and amongst democracies, need to be a lot stronger than they are with authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. And so there has to be a re, um, reshuffling of the global supply chain, the global financial flows. And of course, that's going to be painful in the beginning. But over time, what we believe is that it's going to lead to further economic growth in those democracies because democracies tend to create innovation, technology, talent, and capital in ways that totalitarian or authoritarian regimes can't. But what's been happening since the end of the Cold War is those democracies have been taking those technology, talent, innovation, and capital and flowing them to China in support of the Chinese Communist Party for the purpose of hopefully someday liberalizing uh, China. And, and clearly, the Chinese Communist Party has adapted their system to take advantage of that without actually allowing the principles of democracy and free trade to flow to the population. And so this creates a challenge for democracies in sustaining their economies, the prosperity of their societies, but also in promoting their own values and, and principles of democracy and, and rule of law and civil liberties and human rights. So I think that, you know, from a Canadian point of view, we see that China is not prepared to integrate into the multilateral institutions in accordance with the standard rules that apply. In other words, you know, maybe no country follows the WTO to the letter, but there's sort of a space for maneuvering and China goes way outside that, that space. And China is also seems to increasingly incorporate senior officials into multilateral agencies, Interpol and ICAO and so on, who appear to be acting under instructions from the Chinese Communist Party to undermine those those multilateral institutions. But you know, we, we look at the at the case of the Canadian canola, 
the Chinese government did come up with a spurious reason for banning the Canadian canola, which is that it contained a lot of dockage, in other words, impurities. None of our other customers have had any problem with our canola. But most recently, today, a document came out of the president of the, president of the Czech Republic. It's uh, uh, information from the Chinese embassy in Prague to the Czech government that says that if the speaker of the Czech parliament went to Taiwan, that the Chinese authorities would punish Volkswagen Skoda, Home Life Trust, and the Petrov Piano Company, which apparently sells a lot of pianos, and the leader of it is a important political person, a conservative party there. So it seems that, that China is becoming more blatant in its willingness to suggest that the normal norms of these multilateral organizations no longer apply. How can we counter that and get things back on the rails? Because for a country like Canada, as a middle power, we're so dependent on these uh, alliances to work in concert with other countries to preserve our security and maintain our prosperity. Well, I think the key idea behind the U.S. national security strategy is to create or knit together democracies in more of a principled order that focuses on what I consider to be the, the charter document for the order that you know essentially was built after World War II, and that's the Atlantic Charter. And so the idea that you have uh, free trade, democratic principles, rule of law, and self-determination is kind of the principles that you know democracies are collectively trying to push forward in the international order is something that cannot be done in the current context when you have just what you said, where these economic and financial connections really force the elites of a country to begin to adhere not to those principles, but the principles of whatever the Chinese Communist Party wants at the particular right. time. So these are leverages. These are ways that they influence democracies today. And so the only way that you can begin to protect your society is by recognizing them and beginning to reorient towards uh, trading with democracies. And so there is this belief that you can compete with China uh, and you can also be cooperative. But, you know, a couple of the areas that we want to be cooperative, I'll just name two. One is on climate change and the other is on health and welfare. We see in climate change, while we're trying to bring them in an agreement like the Paris Accord, yet the Chinese themselves are building coal-fired plants to increase the amount of CO2 that they're releasing to the environment. And then we look on the health side where we're trying to do cooperation and then we just barely got the WHO. We still haven't got CDC folks into China to see what's going on with the coronavirus. And so there's this misplaced belief that you can actually cooperate on, with the Chinese Communist Party in ways that are, that are mutually beneficial. Because, quite frankly, the Chinese Communist Party, if you read their constitution, if you read document number nine, if you read Xi Jinping's own speeches really repudiate all of those things that I mentioned yes. in the Atlantic Charter. And so you have to recognize that when you bring them into the fold, you are not changing them, that they are actually changing the order to essentially reject those principles. And, you know, from the FDR's, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt standpoint, the four freedoms is something I really uh, look to to say, hey, this is this was the vision, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear, freedom from want. This is a the kind of principles that I think collectively we want to promote. But if you look around the world, and when we were looking at this as a problem, what's the first thing you do with a strategy is come up with a problem definition. Why is the international order no longer promoting these, these principles, these four freedoms that we find to be essentially universal? 
right? We believe them to be universal. And the reason is, is because the Chinese Communist Party rejects them and then uses their connection to the world to begin to suppress them because they feel if those four freedoms were to become inculcated in their own society, then that would be a threat to the Chinese Communist Party's continued rule. Yes. You know, in the case of Canada, I think there's a misimpression expounded by elites who are co-opted by Chinese communist money that the Chinese economy is crucial to Canada's future prosperity. But if you look at it objectively, our external trade to China only amounts for about 4% of our external trade and more or less almost 80% goes to the United States. So the question really would be, should Canada be sacrificing our economic relations with China in a principled way because, you know, if China's not willing to play by the international rules, then perhaps we should be responding in in kind. You know, in terms of the Chinese Communist Party, I guess one isn't sure if that would lead to negative consequences for Canada that would lead to an economic downturn, or if instead the Chinese Communist Party would come to respect Canada for, you know, showing some sort of kickback against their outrages and would dampen their enthusiasm for trying to rapidly dismantle the the global order based on the principles that you've just articulated. What would be your advice for Canada in, in this regard? How far can we push it? To what extent can we tell the Chinese government that we're simply not going to put up with their dissembling and strategic deception and and lack of fairness and reciprocity any further? Well, and, and so there's this belief, there's this fundamental belief that the global order currently it represents a free trade regime. And when you have the number two economy that essentially repudiates principles of free trade, both within its own economy, in other words, presents outside companies from being able to compete on an equal playing field with their own companies, and then subsidizes their companies abroad, we have in large respect a non-free trade system. When you couple that with the fact that today financial flows primarily incentivize Chinese companies over domestic companies, within the United States alone, we have essentially ceased to, since the end of the Cold War, invest in infrastructure, invest in our manufacturing base, invest in science and technology development, and invest in STEM education for our own students. And so if the same kind of things are existing within Canada, in other words, if the innovation, technology, and talent of Canada is flowing to China rather than to the citizens of Canada, then you're creating this uh, this system where you perpetuate their system over democracies. And essentially what's happened with the global order, because they've had access to these things from the West, the emerging market world looks to China and says, that's a better model. It's better than democracy. It's better than you know, their market economies because they're providing more for their people. And what's happened is because of this flow of innovation, technology, talent, and capital to China, the beneficiaries of, you know, what used to be democracy and free trade, which were the citizens of those countries, has now shifted over to China. And so I know it it sounds counterintuitive, but as you begin to knit together, again, the democracies and free trade regimes of democracies, and free societies, then their economies are going to begin to grow and their, and their populations are going to become more prosperous. If you look at just on a macro level, Europe, North America, Asia, for the last 20 to 30 years have been near stagnant in growth. Who has been growing? One nation has been growing. Essentially, that's China. And in addition, they've been using that largesse to grow the Belt and Road Initiative, which was really about linking their society to resources 
and linking their society to those resource areas for new markets and creating this, you know, what I would call a co-prosperity sphere based on, you know, totalitarian principles rather than democratic principles. So 1.4 billion Chinese seems like a lot of customers for Canadian companies. But what you see is if you begin to do this right, your democratic system where you can actually compete on a level playing field with other countries that believe in free trade in a market-oriented way allows Canadian companies to actually compete on a level playing field and allows the people of Canada to take advantage of the fact that they're really now connected to democracies, countries that actually support their view of the future and their view of the world, and allows Canadian businesses and Canadian workers to actually benefit from that relationship. I think also, you know, a point that's been made by Chen Duanjie, another senior fellow here at McDonald Laurier, is that Canada's exports to China are primarily primary commodities, grains, rocks, and logs, potash, paper, a lot of a lot of things that come out of the ground. And that if China was to cut us off and political retaliation because we say became friendlier with Taiwan or or you know refused to return their CFO when we've got a legal process ongoing to determine whether she's eligible for extradition, that we could in fact seek markets um, in other in other countries. But you know there is a, a an issue here about how can Canada work more closely with the United States with regard to uh, coming up with a coordinated approach to the People's Republic of China and hopefully maybe under a different Chinese regime seeing a China that you know, it's prepared to trade fairly and respect uh, international norms of governance, including human rights. And for example, there's concern here in Canada that the deals made between Donald Trump and Xi Jinping with regard to the Chinese agreeing to bring in large quantities of U.S. agricultural commodities could, in fact, negatively impact on us. So in other words, the U.S. will be selling more soybeans. Uh, Canada and Brazil uh, will be out of luck. How do you see us being able to collaborate better with the United States and coming up with a, with a mutually beneficial approach to China. Well, so, and you make a good point, and I think uh, the same thing that you can look at phase one of the trade deal, which I don't believe there's going to be a phase two. Uh, in, in, in many respects, you know, the way that China looks at both the U.S. economy and the Canadian economy and the Australian economy, I'll just use those three as an example, is very much about energy and food and raw materials. And if you think about it, that's kind of an emerging market economy and doesn't really, it's not a high value added economy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in, in many ways you can say, because the global supply chain moved to China, because we offloaded our ability to actually uh, add value to, to the resources that we had naturally occurring uh, in our own geography, that we offloaded the ability to provide the kind of jobs that allowed for you know, people to own homes and send their kids to school and really live the, what we would call, what we used to call the American dream. This same activity is going on around the world as increasingly developed economies become more commodity-based economies. Now, this uh, USMCA, I think, is a good example of how we need to go forward in the future. And that is, you know, across democracies that also have market-based uh, economies, that we need to have a, a set of standards for environmental protections and labor protections that doesn't allow for the corporate sector, the multinational corporate sector, to offload their manufacturing cap capability to places where they don't have to abide by those labor regulations and those, um, and those environmental regulations, which is exactly what they've done in China. 
So if you go to China now, and I've lived there twice, of course, you see the pollution there on the land and the air and the water. You know how bad it is. Plus, if you've any um, contact with workers in China, you see how poorly they're treated uh, and really how they're used almost as slaves in, in, in driving this global economy and the supply chain from there for the purpose of increasing the profitability of corporations in the West. And so the idea behind USMCA and I think the idea behind where we need to go collectively as democracies is to say, hey, we can't do that. You know, we need to actually have consistent labor protections, consistent environmental protections and work together as democracies to provide the kind of work for our own people, both in the U.S. and in Canada, in this case, Mexico, that actually promotes our system of economy and government. I would say just as a as a humorous aside, you know, these commodities, primary commodities are, are hard to, to uh, keep track of independently. And when China imposed tariffs on U.S. lobsters, the Canadian lobster harvest went up uh, several times. And the number of lobsters moving from North America to China, I don't think uh, was reduced. But I, I think the, the other aspect here is that to our understanding, you know, the United, the United States is politically now quite united on the question of how to approach China. I saw that, that Speaker Pelosi, uh, ostensibly the American uh, president's nemesis, made quite a, a strong statement on Huawei at the Munich Security Conference. And uh, certainly the Trump administration has quite a consistent policy with regard to China. Canada does not. Uh, within our major parties, there's still quite a split on how to approach China and still considerable support for Canada negotiating some form of free trade with China, despite a provision in the US uh, MCA, as you pointed out, that allows either party to aggregate the agreement if, if one of the parties goes for a free trade with a large uh, undeveloped economy, which that would be pretty clear who we're talking about here. So the, the question really is about uh, elite uh, co-optation. You know, we observe in Canada that a number of persons who played key roles in China policy while in office, both in the civil service and in the political realm, after they leave government service, often are appointed to lucrative boards or, uh, or other affiliations with the People's Republic of China. Right now, we don't have any real means to to sanction that. There's nothing illegal about it. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of trying to make this sort of activity a bit more transparent and without violating the human rights of the of the Canadians who may not wish to be revealing their sources of funds or any kind of implied bargains there may have been that resulted in them being able to become wealthy in their post-government career phase. Yeah, so first on, you know, the responsibility of the United States to kind of take the lead in this. I think we recognize that, you know, given the size of the American economy, um, the U.S. is going to have to take on the brunt of what it is to essentially rebalance this relationship with China. In doing so, it's going to seek to bring along its allies and partners in a like-minded way. And this is a challenge for the United States in convincing its allies and partners that this is a better way to approach democracy and free trade. And so it is not the complete responsibility of Canada to rebalance this relationship, but certainly it can look to the United States as seeking to essentially knit together this, this more principled order. But, you know, in, in terms of how do we deal with the fact that elites are incentivized in the way that they currently are, 
some of the things are really, you know, self-driven by our own policies. So within the United States, for example, we have this challenge of, you know, Wall Street essentially uh, continuing to drive capital. And for the United States, as a country that has 40% of the investable capital in the world, that's an incredible leverage with China. And Wall Street is really incentivizing the flow of that capital to go to China. Because we treat Chinese companies with developing market rules. In other words, Chinese companies aren't required to meet audit transparency requirements that, say, U.S. or Canadian companies are to be registered and listed on our financial markets in the United States. And so when we begin to treat and essentially enforce the rules on China, then you create this you know, availability of capital that has been flowing into China now to go into other places. And this is where I think you know, as we work together and really begin to create enforcement mechanisms in place that not only the United States is really stepping out and doing. So whether it be CFIUS reform, whether it be reforming the, the, the financial system, whether it be tariffs, whether it be Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, whether it be any of these enforcement mechanisms that are meant to actually enforce the rules of the international order by saying, hey, if you're going to do business in the United States, then these are the rules you're going to comply by. And we're no longer going to allow you to just come run roughshod over our companies and our citizens. Then I think, you know, you're going to create this tendency for China to want to shift to places like Canada and and Europe and use those as a, a way to offset the fact that we're trying to protect our own citizens and our own economy. If we can begin to knit together a system that denies them that ability then we can be much stronger collectively as democracies, and then we can see our uh, economies and our societies benefit. But, you know, this is a challenge. And, and quite frankly, I don't have the answer for Canada. I can tell you that the longer that Canada is tied to the Chinese Communist Party, the more you're going to see this, you know, commoditization of Canadian economy, and the more you're going to see a tendency for the society within Canada to be more oriented to the influence of the Chinese Communist Party, just as you were saying with the elites. So do you think there are mechanisms to try and ensure the loyalty of Canadian officials to, to the country that they should be serving? So what the Chinese Communist Party has been absolutely brilliant at is essentially unlocking self-interest for the national interest or for the Chinese Communist Party interest. It used to be that if you were doing well in democracies economically, or if your company was doing well, then you're, you were strengthening your own society. We've gotten away from that by shifting the locus of that incentive to the Chinese Communist Party. And so we need to reorient that. So if you're doing well as a Canadian company, then you ought to be strengthening the economy and the society of Canada. You ought not to be strengthening the Chinese Communist Party's ability to influence Canada. Finally, I wonder if we could turn to Huawei, which I know is a topic that you have uh, a lot of very strong and and, uh, insightful views on. Here in Canada, we have three main telecommunications companies. Rogers, which has just started to offer 5G service using Ericsson technology in four major Canadian cities, and then Bell and TELUS. Bell and TELUS are dominated by Huawei 3G and 4G technology. And TELUS has just announced that they will start proceeding with Huawei 5G in the absence of a government decision to determine the nature of how Huawei or if Huawei should participate in our telecommunications that 
the cost to TELUS and Bell of not adopting Huawei 5G because they already have Huawei kit at the lower levels of their networks would be colossal. The prime minister made a very unusual promise in the last election that he would be calling for a reduction of cell phone costs by 25%. So the, the question really is, the government promised to make a decision on Huawei before the last election, then they changed after the election. Now we're several months on. It looks as if the decision is coming close because presumably Bell and TELUS won't be able to, to withstand the competition from Rogers if they don't start moving on, on 5G. What can we do to prevent this from happening? And what sort of implications will there be for Canada-US relations if, in fact, the government decides to allow the installation of Huawei 5G into our network, either without restriction or a British-like solution where we try and make a distinction between the core and the edge of 5G technology, which I think most experts find doubtful at best. So I think when you look at 5G, you have to step back and say, what is the overall imperative here? And it really goes to data. And so, you know, there's two things that, that kind of come to mind here. One is this idea that people are worried about us having two internets. I, what I can tell you is with the Great Firewall and the Internet of Canada, just in that those two ecosystems, you have two internets. You have one that prevents essentially Canadian digital companies from playing on an even playing field with Chinese companies. Now, here's the other thing. Kai-Fu Lee, which is a, a, the leading thought leader on artificial intelligence in China, says that China's goal is to become the Saudi Arabia of data. And so when you think about what the, the strategy they're trying to achieve with regard to not just Huawei, but also Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. So when you think of data, think of Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. Because for 4G, what happened was when the iPhone came into existence along with Android, those became the platforms when coupled with a 4G network, we went from an economy that was really primarily an industrially based economy in 2007 to by 2018, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Apple and Google and Microsoft were the leading companies in market cap in the world and really represented the majority of the global market capitalization. The Chinese Communist Party saw this, saw the power of data to motivate you and to influence you to buy more shoes on Amazon's platform. And they thought, okay, we can take data, we can use algorithms, we can influence people to buy things for Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, but we can also influence them in ways that promote Chinese Communist Party interests. And so this is the power behind what Kai-Fu Lee is talking about, the idea of this social credit score that's not just domestically oriented, but also globally oriented with, uh, with 5G. What happens today is that within the United States and within Canada, the telcos really don't have the money to invest in networks because what happened is during that transition from an industrialized global economy to an information-based global economy, these five, six companies came over the top of telcos, took all the value by taking the data out of the system and monetizing it and left no money for telcos. So the way China compensates for this is by taking the money that Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent currently makes and then subsidizing the network because they just want access to the data. They realize that if they have access to the data, that in 10 years, it won't be Facebook, Amazon, and Google. It'll be Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And when that is the case, not only will they have the ability to dominate the global economy, they'll have the reach and influence in societies at the individual level that allows them to begin to 
condition people to do things like they want to do. So Daryl Morey of the Houston Rockets becomes a very clumsy comparatively outcome as opposed to when you're fully connected to the Canadian society and every single thing because cameras around your cities are essentially watching the people of Canada and providing all of that intelligence to Chinese companies that, that can then pick winners and losers within Canada via these businesses to create the kind of influence that they really crave. And this is what they're doing right now. They built it in China. If you go back in 2017, they were demonstrating a lot of these capabilities. And even now they're beginning to roll out the social credit score in China. Once you have the, the network and the app services and business models of this economy, you can begin to deploy them just like the U.S. did with its Silicon Valley tech companies. I think what we focus on in the national security strategy is we need to flip that and put the ownership of data back on the individual and really give power back to the individual and democracies and provide some kind of rebalancing between these large tech companies and technologically sophisticated totalitarian regimes like the Chinese Communist Party and allow the citizens to really have ownership over their data in a way that currently today we don't provide them access to. That requires governments to actually take the lead here. Today, in the United States and other democracies, we're allowing the telco industry, which is completely at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, to govern where our spectrum policy goes, to govern where our network policy goes, rather than government standing up and saying, okay, the world has moved from the 20th century when weapons were you know, the primary motivator of geopolitics. Now it's about economics and data, and we better get a handle of, on this if we want to promote democratic principles going forward. I think, you know, for me also, there's the moral question, uh, looking at the superseding indictment of the Eastern District Court of New York with regard to Huawei. You see a company who, you know, has been dissembling, engaging in theft of various kinds, even providing more or less open incentive schemes for its employees to purloin technology primarily from the United States and supporting the regime in Iran by providing them with this technology that allows them to monitor dissidents. You know, does Canada want to be giving the enormous profits from 5G to the Chinese state to enable them to engage in more repression against their people? Yeah, and I would say the most valuable thing going forward in Canada is the data that its people generate because it allows them to improve their lives or vice versa, it can allow them to be controlled. And so it's how we harness that data that's so important. We have created some incredible technologies and technology advancement is accelerating. It's not slowing down, it's not linear, it's actually geometric. And if we don't take advantage of that in a way that promotes democratic principles, then you know we're gonna see the erosion of our democracies going forward. Well, it's been a great pleasure having you, General, on uh, Pod Bless Canada. Thank you very much for all your insights. Thank you for inviting me.